0: Uh, Last night at about 2.30 or 3, my son Oliver uh, woke me up to pray about this message today. (laughs) Uh, Sarah's been dealing with that for the most part, but she has recently been saying, I really need help. And so I was there to help last night a little bit. And uh, so Oliver and I paced back and forth uh, by the light of the moon in my room, and we prayed about this passage. And it is one that I'm anxious about. Uh, And I'll tell you why, because this is precisely the intersection where so many people down through the years have gone off the rails into really disastrous error. We're going to be spending time this morning in James 2, verses 14 through 26, where James is going to be talking about the relationship between faith and works. And and we need to be so careful here. Uh, There are a whole... Uh, heretical movements that have evolved around getting the way that these two things relate correct let's begin just by uh, reading the text i'm in james 2 verses 14 through 26 it says this what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds can such faith save them "'Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. "'If one of you says to them, "'Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, "'but does nothing about their physical needs, "'what good is it? "'In the same way, faith by itself, "'if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. "'But someone will say, "'You have faith, I have deeds.'" In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now here in this passage, this is a life and death sort of a question. And I fear really and truly that many churchgoers today... Uh, possess a high degree of Bible knowledge. Uh, They can name the four Gospels. You ask, what are the four Gospels? They'll say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They can name some of the Old Testament kings. I can't name all of them. I don't know anybody who can. There's a bunch of them. They can name some of the cities that Paul visited as a missionary. They know some doctrines. They know who Peter was. But knowing the Bible is not the same as knowing the Bible's author. It's possible to be familiar with the concept of sin but to be unconcerned over sin in your own life. It's possible to possess knowledge of the biblical doctrine of justification but still still feel no urgency to be justified to God personally. You can know all about the Christian life while living your life any way you want. That exists. What is the value of words and doctrines and right understanding and biblical truth if they do not find purchase in an obedient heart? It's not that knowing the truth doesn't matter. Of course it does. It's that knowing the truth only matters when it informs how we actually live. Jesus described the foolish man who built his house on the sand in Matthew 7 Not as someone who was ignorant of his commands, but as someone who heard them and didn't do them. And we should not be impressed similarly by the person with a PhD in theology who holds no special passion for following Jesus' example in how they live. Jesus said that those who love him are the ones who obey his commands not the ones who have them memorized or who have written books about them. There are two questions that James poses in James 2.14. James leads off this passage of Scripture in verse 14 with two important questions. First, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? That's his first question. What good is it? If somebody says, I believe in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, all of it, but they don't really have a life that backs up the belief or flows from that belief, what good is that? And the second, which follows quickly on the heels of the first, is this, and it's really the most urgent, pressing question. Can that sort of a faith save them? At the risk of putting words in James's mouth, which it really is a risky proposition, his words are divinely inspired, my words are my words. <laughs> but at the risk of putting words in his mouth, I think these two questions can possibly be reworded this way. Is a faith without deeds going to be any help to others in this life? And the second question Is it going to be any help to a person when they come to the end of their own life? These are the questions James is going to answer in our text for this morning. Because in verse 14, he poses those two questions, and then in the verses that follow, he goes on to answer them. So the first question is this, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Is such a a faith of any use in life? He says this by way of answering his own question verse 15 suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food if any of you says to them go in peace keep warm and well fed but does nothing about their physical needs what good is it in the, and it's a rhetorical question the obvious answer seems to me is no in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's, that's the, those are the words of James. Clearly, the answer here is no. Is faith without deeds good for anything? James says no, it's not. Now, we are called as a church, this is a bit of review, forgive me for that, uh, but it's, the most important things are worth repeating the most often. Uh, we're called as a church and also individually to do what? We exist to make disciples. That's what the Great Commission calls us to do, to go and win worshipers for God out of the world and to be that personally. How do we make disciples? Well, we do that by continuously emphasizing three things in our life together as a church family, loving God, loving others, love in action. Now, on other Sundays, we have demonstrated ad nauseum, that that is mined from a scriptural ore. That is not something I just came up with in my office one day. The Bible, especially in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, really says that all of God's revelation to man can be summed up in these three statements. And when Jesus says that making a disciple, part of that effort is to teach them all that he commanded, all of those commands can be summarized in these three ideas, loving God, loving others, love in action. This is what we're all about. And my prayer is that anybody who gets to know State Road and our church family in more than just a superficial surface way would come to the realization that we are a people who are all about loving God, loving others, and loving in action. It's not a slogan for us. It's something that we mean, really and truly, and it's woven into the fabric of who we are as a church family. And there is an expectation here that a fully committed follower of Jesus— is someone who is always growing and going deeper in these three areas. Loving God, loving others, and love in action. Those three statements are so interrelated and intertwined that really you can't separate them out from each other. You can't separate a love from God from a love for others. 1 John 4.21, for example, makes that clear. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The two go together. They're inseparable, and you can't hold a love for God and others without moving on that in some way. First John 3:18 says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed in truth. So loving God, loving others, love in action, these three go together. And anybody who embraces some of these statements, but not all three, may do a pretty good imitation of a Christian. They might even be able to fool some people into thinking they're truly a Christian but they don't fool God. And they can't really be a follower of Jesus because a disciple is a sincere, from the heart, imitator of Jesus who embraced and embodied the pursuit of these three things perfectly. And I thought instantly about those three statements when James said in verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Love in action. It is a necessary part of the whole. The example that James uses here about a brother or sister who is without clothes or food reminds me of what Jesus himself said in Matthew 25 about how when he returns at the final judgment, (coughs) excuse me, I was hungry and you gave me no food, naked and you did not clothe me. And they will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or naked and not help you out? And Jesus will answer them, as you did not do unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. James is echoing his older half-brother here in verses 15 through 17, when he basically raises the exact same scenario as in Matthew 25. And again, Jesus is our example in all of this. Jesus did not wish humanity well from afar. He didn't say, be warm and well-fed from the comforts of heaven. He gave us the bread of life to satisfy our, deep hunger for our, our the deep hunger of our souls. And he covered our nakedness with his own robes of righteousness. The point I'm trying to make is this. Jesus did something when he saw our desperate need. And he has called us to take up our cross and be like him in the world, to go and do likewise. So faith in Jesus demands a response from us that is active, if it is real. An inactive faith is really no faith at all. Imagine with me a $100 bill that enters circulation. I read this illustration years ago in a book. I wish I could credit who gave it to me, but I don't know. But imagine a $100 bill entered circulation. It made its way into the collection plate at a church, and that church collected the $100 bill and used it for a lot of good things. Some of the $100 went to fund world missions. Some went to buy food for the needy. Some bought heating oil for a local person in the community. But when it got deposited in the bank and the person at the bank was reviewing the bill, they found it to be a counterfeit bill. good or bad it was real food it was real heating oil it really did help a missionary abroad but in the end when it was in the hands of the expert it was found to be a counterfeit there's something here that should be very sobering for us in the christian life and this is really the intersection where it gets real slippery and dangerous James is rightly pointing out a truth that other books of the Bible counterbalance in a necessary way. Uh, It's like a bird. Imagine a bird with one wing. (laughs) It can can flap, but it's not going to rise off the ground. The Bible commands us around this issue of faith and works to hold two things as true at the same time. And unless you have both of these truths in your mind you will be a lopsided creature that cannot get off the ground, spiritually speaking. One is, and this is absolutely true, let it sink down into the very depths of your soul, and I will put no mitigating language around it. You are saved today not because of anything you've done. You cannot obtain or maintain your salvation through works. Cannot, full stop, that is a statement around which I will put no qualifying clauses or language. That's true. The basis of your hope in Christ is purely what Christ did. You add nothing to it. That is a finished work, and you can rest in it. However, and this is the other wing that needs to be beating simultaneously, That faith in Jesus, when it is real, will show up in a transformed life. There will be visible evidence of that being a real transforming thing that has happened within you. And what James is addressing, there are other times in the Bible where Paul, Paul most full-throatedly. I mean, very strong in his language, especially in the book of Galatians. You read that book of Galatians and you understand his words, it'll make you blush in places. I won't even quote it. It's hard in mixed company. <laughs> but there he's talking to a certain number of people who are, a bit, are big on emphasizing works to the exclusion of faith, real faith, faith in Jesus for what he did, resting in what he did. They're all about works, demonstrating works, that that's how you're saved. And Paul takes a sledgehammer to that argument. Very strong language, very energetic in in, in what he does there, in Galatians especially. James, on the other hand, is speaking to the other sort of lopsided creature. Lopsided, one wing beating away, talking about their faith and what they believe, but it never finds expression in a transformed life of doing. Paul and James are working together, talking to two different deformed human creatures with one massive muscular wing and one little atrophied appendage on one side. And so James is really talking to somebody here who has a belief that they're good because they give mental assent to certain truths that they then don't live out. So faith in Jesus demands that we love God, love others, love in action. And an act of love is no faith at all. We have to believe that the Bible says so. But this brings us to the weightier of the two questions, which is, of course, the second one. And thus, James will dedicate more time to answering it. And that question is, can such a faith save a person? And again, this is a question of life and death. (laughs) This is a big-time important question. And it's also important because if it's misunderstood, it could lead a person to the absolutely disastrous conclusion that Jesus did his part in saving me on the cross, and now I have to do my part by doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, One of my sons is in Boy Scouts, and he has to get in a certain number of service hours to get one of his, I don't know, merit badges or promotions or something. I'm not a good dad. I don't actually know what's going on over there. <laughs> he put a paper in front of me. I signed it. <laughs> but basically, when we read James, I, I'm really afraid some people will read this about faith and good works, and they will think in their heart of hearts that what God is saying here is you've got to get in a certain number of service hours to get into heaven. You know, Jesus did what he could on the cross, but now it's time for you to ante up you got to put in your hours. you got to do lots of good stuff to get in there. Now, that's a bit of a grotesque, cartoonish reduction of human reasoning there, but I don't think it's that far from how a lot of people view this passage in their heart of hearts when they read it. If I put in enough community service hours, Jesus will sign off on my salvation. And that is not the gospel, <laughs> That is not the good news, that is the same old bad news offered up by every other religion under the sun. James answers his own question by first, his own question, which is, can such a faith save? And he answers this by looking first at a negative example. He's going to point to the, the, the faith of demons, if you will. Demons believe the gospel, every word of it, and shudder. They hate it. So he's going to point to a negative example, and then he'll point to two positive examples that will make his point in an affirmative way. Really, we do not have time this morning to do a deep dive into Rahab or Abraham, but if we studied those stories, what you would see is that what they believed found expression in what they did, and what they did revealed what they actually believed. And the same can be said for you and for me here today. What you believe will find expression in what you do. And what you do reveals what you actually believe. And this is true for Rahab. This is true for Abraham. I think one of the most impressive things about Rahab, if we were going to study her story, and really this morning we don't have time to do a deep dive into that, she was living in Jericho, if you know her story from the book of Joshua. And archaeological evidence has shown that they that this invasion um, that of Jericho happened right after the harvest, so their grain bins were chock full of food. They had a secure water source within the city. The walls were so thick, Jericho, that chariots could ride abreast on top of it. They had food, water, an incredible defense, physical defense. God Himself in His Word describes the men of Jericho as. V- Valiant fighting men. If I was in Jericho and I was tucking my kids into bed at night, I would have said, listen, there is nothing to worry about. We've got these walls. Other armies have come and gone. We've got food, water. Uncle Jethro is up on the wall. Very interesting, though, that Rahab believed God when he said these walls are going to come down. And if you don't have a scarlet rope hanging out your apartment and if you don't have your family gathered into your apartment they will all die and so on the day when the walls came down the scarlet rope was hanging from the window and Rahab had gathered all her family into her apartment she believed by faith even though everything she saw said that's an unlikely event this is what I'm talking about what we believe will find expression in what we do And what we do reveals what we actually believe. And if we grasp the truth of these two examples and what they lived out, we see that an internal faith finds outward expression in visible acts of obedience. All living faith is visible and accompanied by cheerful, obedient action. James says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. To which he responds, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You see, deeds are not the building blocks of faith. It is the demonstration of faith. This is a very important distinction. He says, I will show you my faith. I will show you what saves. I will show you the inner true reality by this outward display. What is worship? but an outward display of an inner treasuring. He says, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. How many news reports have you heard that you believed every word of it, but you hated the truth of what you were hearing? Yeah, (laughs) we're all familiar with that scenario. You don't love some news that you receive? I think that the sort of person whom James has in mind as he is writing these words is somebody whose faith is primarily intellectual, they know about God, they know the salvation plan, they can give all the right answers, and if asked, if they were pressed on it, they would even say that they believe in those things. I believe in God. However, for them, all that right knowledge somehow does not translate into a transformed way of living. The sort that is marked by willing, cheerful obedience to the commands of Jesus and a genuine, sincere resolve to follow the example of Christ in the everyday of their lives. The way they spend their money, the entertainment they consume, the way they talk, treat others, and manage their homes is, in nearly every respect, identical to their non believing neighbors. But they will tell you they believe. I think we all know this sort of person. Perhaps they were raised in the church and they were raised to have an understanding of the truth, and they have, but they have never fully embraced those truths for themselves in a governing transformational way. They've never out and out rejected Jesus in the gospel, but they've never really embraced it as central to their lives, transformational. And what James wants us to know, not because he is harsh and mean and judgmental, but because this is life and death stuff. And he cares, and he does not want anyone to be self-deceived. He speaks very plainly in saying that simply giving mental assent to the truth, just agreeing with the truth of it, is not the stuff of saving faith. The Bible is consistent that such an internal transformation, if it be real, will always find outward visible expression in a life of joyful obedience. It's very important to know, and again, I have to keep coming back to these counterbalancing truths, because uh, I, find that, um, I find that I personally, let me not talk about human beings in general, let me just talk about Josh Tate and my own experience. I have a really hard time holding some of these truths together at the same time in my mind. I tend to pinball between them rather than holding them together in the fullness of what they mean together. So I tend to... Say, I'm saved by faith, and then I careen drunkenly into kind of, I'm going to do lots of works, (laughs) and I I, I sometimes struggle to hold on to the two things together. There's lots of places in the Bible where this is true, where I kind of pinball between these two things rather than holding them together at the same time. So forgive me if I'm repetitious in repeating these counterbalancing truths, but after emphasizing the importance of works in the Christian life, it does need to be countered in our minds, in our hearts, with the wonderful truth that works reveal what they do not have the power to create. What James is describing here are are, are ways to soberly look at your life almost like as a diagnostic, you know. Um, When he's talking in such a strong way about the importance of works, we really do have to know that the works he's describing have the power to reveal what they do not have the power to create. Works are the proof and the product of a true saving faith. But salvation itself can neither be obtained or maintained through works. Most of us in the church have come to understand that fallen mankind and righteous Almighty God have had this great falling out. Their sin, we broke His law, And because there's been this falling out and we want to make things right, we make the logical leap that sets us on a path to ruin and we think that what Jesus requires in order for us to enter back into his good graces is for us to prove our worthiness and our devotion through doing some great stuff. If only we can make some grand gesture, some grand sacrifice, some show of devotion, a long prolonged demonstration of obedience then he would say okay you're the real deal that would really prove to Jesus that we believe and in so doing if I were to do that I would disastrously stop putting my faith in what Jesus did for me on the cross and instead I would begin to think that my right standing before God is dependent on this thin resume of my own good works And this is, of course, the very opposite of what Jesus teaches. And in fact, the Bible is emphatic that that way of approaching Jesus is deeply dishonoring and displeasing to Him because it amounts to a rejection of His sacrifice on the cross. That's a strong statement, but it is true. If you try to shoulder any part of your salvation, you are rejecting the cross. You're saying, thanks, Jesus, but I'll take it from here don't do that. (laughs) And this goes a long way, by the way, to explaining the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees that we encounter in the Bible. Remember, whenever they would encounter somebody who was a sinner or needy, they would look upon that person with an arrogant contempt. They would look down on them as wicked people, particularly worthy of their loathing, I guess. Why did they feel that way? It's a truth we return to often here at State Road, but what we worship, we are becoming. In the Pharisees' scheme, they believed that what made them right before God was that they had overcome. They had demonstrated incredible responsibility, And integrity. They had checked all the boxes. They had done what was right. And God loved them because they were the good ones. (laughs) So what did they see when they looked on somebody who was miserable and suffering and a sinner? They said, you've got to do. You've got to earn from me my favor. You've got to earn love from me by cleaning yourself up. You're a slob. You're disgusting. Look at you. This is their attitude because that's how they viewed God. What we worship, we become. And if we are to be a gospel-shaped church, we really need to get this faith works things right. We have to understand perfectly what is happening here when God is talking about the importance of works. He is not saying, clean yourself up, you filthy slobs. He is not saying, demonstrate to me your sincerity. Show me a demonstration of your devotion and I'll give you the good thing. This is not what he is saying. And if we were to believe that, it would translate into a wicked, perverse church culture that instead of extending grace to sinners and the needy, love, grace, acceptance, forgiveness would look down upon them with arrogant contempt and thereby dishonor Jesus, misrepresent him horribly. That's why these passages are so critically important to get right, because they have a way of bleeding into the hole and shaping church life. Listen to this in Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You're not going to get a gift from God. You're going to get exactly what you deserve if you set out to do this. Sobering language from Paul. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Oh, God. Count my faith apart from my works as righteousness. Now, this this passage is seemingly in direct contradiction to what James is saying. Seemingly, it is not. Again, remember that James and Paul are addressing two different deformed creatures. One has a big muscular wing of faith, but a little atrophied appendage of works. The other is putting all their faith in this big muscular wing of works while downplaying the importance of faith in Jesus for salvation. They're speaking to two different deformed, lopsided versions of humanity. And so just like when, in, for example, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, don't hide your light under um, a bushel, right? But then in Matthew 6, he says, beware of doing your good works in front of others. That's seemingly in contradiction, but they're not really. They're not really. He's just recognizing that some human beings, because of a human audience, will hide their light Others, because of a human audience, will turn the light up and put on a little show. And so he's speaking to these two different forms of lopsided, deformed worship. And that's exactly what's happening in these sorts of passages. And I don't know who you are. I I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know which side of that equation all of us need to hear this morning. But as far as our study this morning regarding works goes... Let us just settle on this. A faith that is alive will always be made visible through a mode of living and deeds that give outward expression to a person's inner transformation. But works themselves are powerless to create that needed transformation. Springtime makes our yards full of grass. But you cannot make springtime by throwing grass over the snow. And this is just as weird and perverse as if we said, I'm going to become saved by doing a bunch of good stuff. Or I'm going to maintain my level as a saved person by doing all these things. And if I stop doing them, I'd probably lose my salvation. You're just shoveling grass on top of the snow. That's all it is. Springtime comes when the snow melts. Not by shoveling grass on top of the snow. The light shining forth in Jesus' example there is the good deeds which are seen and which result in others glorifying our Father in heaven. An intellectual head knowledge of God that does not find expression outwardly in righteous deeds is like a smothered candle, and such, such a candle is of no use whatsoever." people don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl but on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house house genuine faith shines visibly jesus is saying and james is saying something very similar he says you believe that there is one god good you believe that there's god great you're right on that's true that is the most basic teaching of christianity This is the opening line of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, called the Shema in Judaism. This is the most basic belief of Judaism also, which was recited twice a day by Pharisaic Jews. Uh, they, They recite the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, twice a day. These doctrines are also foundational to Christianity. This is the scripture Jesus was quoting when he said that the greatest commandment was to love God with everything that you are. This is the first of our three statements here in our church that is so central to our church life and that we define in broad brushstrokes what it is to be a sincere from the heart imitator of Jesus. We start with loving God. But James points out that even demons believe the truth of God that He exists. And they shudder. Just knowing that God is does not translate into a saving faith. Believing in the reality of God accomplishes nothing if it does not result in obedience to that one true God. To know and believe that God exists matters not at all if he is not honored and loved and obediently followed as God. A belief in the correctness of God's Word matters not a bit if it is not personally obeyed. Uh, I'm running out of time, but just real quick, just an interesting um, scriptural example of this truth. Um, We've talked about Christmas a lot today. (laughs) If you go to the Christmas story, you remember the story of the wise men visiting? And they believed. Uh, Again, a great example of what you believe finds expression in what you do, and what you do reveals what you actually believe. These guys coming all the way from where they lived, probably in modern-day Persia, bringing with them these gifts, coming into the turf of a homicidal dictator like King Herod, and saying, where is he who is the next, who's going to replace you, Herod? (laughs) Uh, These guys are really acting in ways that demonstrate a remarkable faith. Do you know who else has a weird kind of faith in that interaction, though? Is Herod. Do you remember what Herod does when he hears the news of what the Magi are there asking for? He calls together all of the experts in God's law and he asks them to consult God's word about where the child would be born. Guys, he believes in the prophecy. He believes in the truth of God's word. He believes them when they identify Bethlehem. He believes every word of it, but he shudders. He shudders. Herod and the wise men both demonstrate by works what they love and treasure. What we love, what we treasure is going to find outward expression, James is saying, pay close and careful attention to the works, uh, because this is, this is going to reveal some very important things that it could never create in your life, but it is a very important thing to pay close attention to. And as we go into Missions Emphasis Month, as we're in this time and we're talking about works and good deeds... Uh, definitely an important conversation for God's people to have and be thinking about in the midst of all that. Let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the way that our, our hope and our feeling assured of our standing before you it does not rest on our goodness, But God, James, is is, uh, eager that we not be deceived into thinking that we are saved when we have no particular love for righteousness, where the heart of our Lord is not much present in our own hearts, where we are not concerned about the great cause of Jesus. Or about being like him personally. Or in the way we use our free time or our resources or in our marriages. Or whether we operate with integrity at our work. Father, if these things don't trouble us, James is eager for us to see that a faith without good deeds is just packaging. It's It's a mislabel. And so, Father, you invite us to look at the fruit of what we profess. Father, we know that we cannot create salvation through works. You have made that so abundantly clear. You've also made it clear, God, that having been saved, you do not now expect us to continue our salvation or maintain it through works. But you do tell us in your word to be sober in the way we look at our inner world and what flows out of it, to determine if what we profess really has taken root in a transformational way in our hearts. Father, I thank you that all that you require of us is to believe in Jesus. But when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence and begins by degrees, not perfectly, But sincerely, we begin to move more and more over time towards you. Father, our justification in Christ, that thing you did, which we can claim no part of, you did all at once in a single transaction, and we are now completely right, completely washed clean because of Jesus. But now begins the work of sanctification, which is a process, which does happen by degrees over time. It has reversals and hiccups and seasons where we're less active in it. But God, you who began a good work in us are seeing it through to completion even unto the day of Christ. And so, Father, we ask you, Lord, to continue that good work, continue to draw us more and more into a life of good deeds that agrees with the confession of our mouth. In Jesus' name, amen.